God kept his promises to Abraham, you can count on him keeping his promise to you. No one's going to keep him from keeping his word. No one's going to keep him from keeping his promise. Jesus said in the New Testament, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Our word ought to mean something. God's word means everything. Not only did God give a promise, and not only did God give a pledge, God gave a priest. Who is our high priest? Jesus. And we have fled to him for refuge. And because he died in our place and died for our sins, we have been unconditionally set free forever from our sins. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ today, you're, you're unconditionally set free from your sins forever. Not just the sins you have committed, but the sins you will commit. Someone has calculated there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. Friend, you need to know you can count on every one of them. God will keep On June 27, 1976, armed operatives for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine surprised 12 crew members of an Air France jetliner and its 91 passengers, hijacking it to a destination unknown. The plane was tracked, heading for Central Africa, where indeed it did land under the congenial auspices of Ugandan President Idi Amin. And there it remained, apparently secure, at Entebbe Airport, where the hijackers spent the next seven days preparing for their next move. The hijackers were, by all estimations, in the driver's seat. However, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, Israel, three Israeli C-130 Hercules transports secretly boarded a deadly force of Israeli commandos who, within hours, attacked the Entebbe Airport under the cover of darkness. In less than 60 minutes, the commandos rushed the old terminal, gunned down the hijackers, and rescued 110 hostages. The next day, July 4th, Israel's premier, Yitzhak Rabin, triumphantly declared, the mission will become a legend, which it surely has. Israel's resolve and stealth in liberating her people is admired by her friends and begrudged by her enemies all over the world. But in reality, Israel's resolve is nothing new, because the same quality can be traced all the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew nation and the prowess of their father, Abraham. The kidnappers in his day were a coalition of four Canaanite kings, headed by Chedor Laomer, who attacked the Transjordan, defeated the city-states of Sodom and her neighbors, carrying off a large number of hostages, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. Undaunted, Abraham recruited 318 trained men, proto-commandos, from his own household. He took off in hot pursuit until he closed in on the kidnappers somewhere close to Damascus. And there, under the cover of night, he deployed his small forces in a surprise attack. His troops, riding camels and horses, bore down on the hijackers and their hostages, Deadly arrows flew in the night, bloody swords were raised gleaming in the dusty moonlight, and the four kings were put to flight. The Bible tells a story in the book of Genesis 
And it gives this Entebbe-like summary of Abraham's success. Here's what it says. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham could be formidable. It was not wise to mess with Father Abraham. So when Abraham returned to his home after the slaughter of the kings, he was a hero at the pinnacle of martial success. And if you can picture him proudly astride his lumbering camel, smeared with the dirt and blood of battle, leading his 318 proud men, plus his nephew Lot, and all the captives, and all the plunder through Jerusalem, you've got a good idea of what happened when Abraham had a strange and mystic encounter with a shadowy figure of immense grandeur named Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word today? Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The Hebrew writer says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You may be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Other than what you read in Hebrews chapter 7, there's only one other reference to Melchizedek, and it's found in Genesis chapter 14. And in verse 17, it says, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's all we know about Melchizedek, and that was around 2000 BC. 1,000 years later, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this prophetic word. In Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, God declared he was going to bring into history one who would be a priest like Melchizedek, and in the likeness of Melchizedek, he would be both a priest and a king. Dr. Kent Hughes said, and I quote, his priesthood would last forever. And like Melchizedek, he would be appointed directly by God. It was all divinely guaranteed. The Lord has sworn, sworn and will not change his mind. What an intriguing prophecy. 
God was going to establish a totally new priesthood. Imagine for a moment, Dr. Hughes writes, that you are the writer of Hebrews, writing to encourage the soon-to-be-persecuted Jewish church. Also imagine yourself reflecting both on Melchizedek's history and this prophecy, and then you make the connection. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Further, you are the first person to make this connection. You begin to muse and pray, and everything falls into place. And now in Hebrews 7, you present what you have learned as a means of encouragement to the storm-tossed church. There is no teaching like it anywhere, end quote. Dr. Hughes outlines the seventh chapter of Hebrews this way. Number one, the significance of Melchizedek, verses 1 to 10. Number two, the sufficiency of Melchizedek, verses 11 to 19. And number three, the superiority of Melchizedek, verses 20 to 28. Now, I want to be very clear. I have nothing but the utmost respect for Dr. Kent Hughes. He's one of the great pastors, teachers, Bible scholars I know. But I don't think chapter 7 is about Melchizedek. I think it's about Jesus. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus being greater. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. The type is never greater than the anti-type, the reality. For example, the bronze serpent that God commanded Moses to put on a pole and hold it up so people could look at it and be saved, Numbers chapter 21, verse 8, was a type of Christ being lifted up on the cross in John chapter 3, verse 14. The bronze serpent on a pole is not greater than Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Well, the first 10 verses deal with history. And it is the history of Melchizedek. But remember, it's the story of Jesus. Here's my little secret. Always keep your eyes on Jesus, and everything will make sense. Notice his position, verses 1 and 2. He was king of Salem. That's an ancient name for Jerusalem, the city of our God. He was also the priest of the Most High God. That's the, that's the word El Elyon in the original language. That's a, and that's a more universal name for God. We see that in Genesis. We also see that here in Hebrews. Why is that important? Well, the Jews would never say the name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. They considered God's name too holy for a man to utter, which I love that. Their respect for God is off the charts. But that's not the name that's used for Melchizedek. It's El Elyon, the Most High God. You see, El Elyon is a more universal name, and the point being made was Jesus was not just going to be the Messiah of the Jews. He was going to be the Messiah of the world. God is a God not just for the Jews. God is a God for the Gentiles as well, El Elyon. But notice the titles of Melchizedek. Even his titles foreshadow the character of Christ. Notice verse 2 says, He is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Both pictures of Jesus. 
Now, it didn't say he is the king of righteousness or the king of peace. You know why? Because that title is reserved for Jesus. Jesus is the sole provider of righteousness, which is one of the key tenets of the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew writer will say what the blood of bulls and goats could not do, Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 tell us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he goes on to say, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Melchizedek, even in his titles, was pointing to Jesus. So we see his position. What about his place? Verse 3, he doesn't have one. There's no record of where he came from. There's no record of his parents. He has no genealogy. There's no beginning. There's no end. But he's not immortal. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if he, if he wasn't immortal, he'd still be alive, and he wouldn't be a type of Christ. He'd be a part of the reality. But the type can't be greater than the antitype. All that means is his priesthood was forever. Like Enoch, who walked with God, and then one day he was no more. God just took him to heaven. Now, the Levitical priesthood was based on where you came from your place. And if you were related to the right family, if you were related to Aaron, it didn't matter what you'd done in life, you could be a priest. A person's genealogy determined everything. Personal qualifications meant nothing. If you were a descendant of Aaron, you could be a priest. So you know what happened? Pedigree became more important than personal holiness. And we see that in the Bible, as several priests did things they should have never done, but they thought they were from the right place, so it didn't matter. Notice number three is power, verse four. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? Literally, the pick of the spoils, or as one version puts it, the top of the heap. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of everything he had received. Sound familiar? Now remember, Melchizedek is a pre-picture of Jesus. And I find it both ironic and instructive that the Hebrew writer uses tithing to establish two important points. Number one, that Melchizedek was preeminent in what he received and also in what he gave. He received tithes. And he also blessed Abraham. But number two, the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the priesthood of Aaron. And he used tithing to illustrate that. The fact that Abraham tithed till Melchizedek was a statement that Melchizedek's priesthood was greater than Aaron's. You say, how's that possible? Dr. Phillips explains, under the law of Moses, Levi and the priests, by virtue of their office, received tithes from all the other tribes. But Israel's priests, long centuries before they were even born, gave tithes till Melchizedek in the person of Abraham. 
Therefore, Melchizedek was greater than Aaron, and Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to Aaron's priesthood. Now, tithing didn't begin with Moses and the law. It began long before with Abraham and Melchizedek. But the idea of giving the best of the best, the top of the heap, the first fruits goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the very beginning. So Abraham gave a tithe, a tenth to Melchizedek, who was a type or a pre-picture of Christ. Do you notice what it says in verse 8? Hebrews 7, verse 8, today we give our best, our first fruits to one who lives. That's Jesus. It's a recognition of the other's superiority. It is a sign of submission to that person. It is an act of honor and worship. And not giving to him is an act of disrespect and defiance. So we see the history. Now the writer of Hebrews is going to teach some very important theology. Verses 11 to 22. Now the key to understanding this section of Hebrews 7 is found in verse 19, where it says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's the ultimate goal, that people would draw near to God. The Bible, the Hebrew writer uses the word perfection. It doesn't mean without a mistake, without a flaw. It means completion or, or, or full maturity. This is where we've been going after from the very beginning, full restoration with God, full access to God. Now, I'll tell you up front, he's taking us in some deep water here. So keep your head above water, listen carefully, because he's going to teach us some profoundly fundamental but deeply theological truths. Verse 11. Now, if perfection, remember I already told you, perfection is being, having access to God, being reunited with God. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. In other words, it has to happen. There has to be a change in the law as well. Hang on. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. In other words, this one the Hebrew writer is talking about is from another tribe. He's not from the right tribe to be a priest. He's from another tribe. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This is something different than what Moses did. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, in other words, he came from the right family, but rather by the power of an indestructible life. Who would that be? Now, here's the point. If the Levitical priesthood and the law could have produced this perfection, this this restoring of access to God, that we could draw near to God, bringing man back to God, there would have been no need for another priest. But the priest couldn't do it. The priest couldn't atone for anyone else's sins. 
They had to make sacrifices for their own. Are you aware of that? Before they could offer a sacrifice for you or for me, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves because they were sinners just like us. They couldn't atone for anyone's sins. Even the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he had to give a sacrifice, first of all, for himself before he could offer a sacrifice for the nation. You see, the Levitical sacrifices couldn't remove sin. They could only cover over it. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then in verse 12, he said there had to be a change in the law as well. Even the law couldn't do it. So now wait a minute, the, the law got changed? The law had to be changed. Hebrews 10.1 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, to help you understand what I just read, how many of you have ever seen a speed limit sign out on 360 Highway? Raise your hand. Have you ever seen a speed limit sign out there on 360 Highway? Okay. Can that speed limit sign, can the law make you go what it says? Can, if, if it says 55, can that sign make you go 55? It has no power whatsoever. All that sign does, and if you, like if you've got ways on your, on your cell phone or you've got it on your, on your car, mine, I can hook it up where it, where it shows up on the screen. It'll show me how many miles over the speed limit I'm going. You see, all that law does is reveal the law breakers and the law keepers. That's all it does. It couldn't restore access to God. And it was never intended to do that. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, So then, the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, our tutor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, it doesn't mean that there's, there's no longer any law for us to obey or things that we have to do. It just means that's not necessary because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything changes, not from the outside, but from the inside. And that's why he says in verse 11, if the Levitical priesthood and the law were able to provide access to God, what further need would there have been for another priest after the order of Melchizedek? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And he talks about in verses 13 and 14, he belonged to another tribe. He belonged to the tribe of Judah. That's different than the tribe of Levi. All the priests came from the tribe of Levi. No priest ever came from another tribe. John Philip said Israel's kings descended from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. The priests, on the other hand, descended from the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron. So are you watching what's getting ready to happen here? There's a king coming, and he's getting ready to be a priest as well. A king priest. Now, verse 15, he says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, in other words, being related to the right people, 
but rather by the power of an indestructible life. What's that talking about? All these other priests died, so did Jesus. But death had no hold over Jesus. He rose again. He has an indestructible life. No one else has that. The resurrection is what sets him apart. Now he summarizes in verse 17. He says, for it is witnessed of him, talking about Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is why he's superior. This is why he is greater. So there's a new priesthood. There's a new law. There's another priest, a priest forever, by an oath from God. Now I know some of you are struggling with the idea that I said there's no law. You're going, hey, what happened to the law? We're not talking about God's moral law. We're talking about the old ceremonial laws, the rituals, which were no longer necessary. Why? Because those were all pictures of Christ. All the feasts, all the rituals, all the stuff they did, even bringing sacrifice for sin, that was all done away with at the cross. Because they were just pictures pointing to Jesus. And that's why when a Jewish person finally makes the connection and realizes that all of this stuff in the Old Testament was just pointing toward Jesus, they're called a completed Jew. Why? Because now it all makes sense. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. In fact, if you listen to his Sermon on the Mount, you can't listen to it, but if you read it, he doesn't do away with it. He raises it to a higher standard. He says, because of your love for me and because you're my disciple, you've heard it said that if you call a person fool, you're in danger of hellfire. He says, don't, I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, he raised it to a higher standard. He didn't do away with all the speed limit signs on 360. He just put an inner motivator inside of us that said, go the speed limit. Be an example to others. And that's why he says, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. History, number one. Theology, number two. Now, number three, reality. This passage in verses 23 to 28 is one of the most significant statements in the entire book of Hebrews. He's making the case that no one can compare with Jesus, and the words he uses here, are utterly remarkable. Notice verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by death from continuing in office. 
In other words, people would get their hopes up and think, well, this priest is going to make a difference. But then he died, and they had to get somebody else. And that just kept happening over and over and over again. And then he says, verse 24, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In other words, you're not going to get to the place where you're going, well, you know, Jesus was good for, the, for, for all those years, but he's no longer good anymore. I've got to find somebody else. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's all the way to heaven. Those who draw near to God through him. Remember the Hebrew writer was saying, We couldn't reach perfection with the priesthood and with the law, but now, because of Jesus, they can draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, a lot of people read that, and they say, well, that's talking about prayer. It's talking about Jesus is on His knees right now up in heaven, and He's praying for us. And I I don't dispute for one moment that, that Jesus is praying for us. But I think the word intercession, an intercessor is one who goes between. I think what Jesus is doing is bringing us right into the Father and going, Father, these are my, these are my children. These, this is my son. This is my daughter. He's, he's making that possible. He's making the access possible. And then he says in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, all the Levitical priests were sinful. They, they had to make sacrifices for themselves before they could ever offer sacrifices for somebody else. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Jesus is our incomparable high priest. He has no need, the Hebrew writer says, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Remember that phrase, once for all. He's going to come back to that in our study of Hebrews. Did you notice the five things that sets Jesus apart in verse 26? Number one, he's holy. From the the very beginning until, until today, he has honored God and always done what God wanted him to do. None of us can say that. No one can say that. He's holy. Number two, he's innocent, literally without evil. Number three, he's unstained without any moral or spiritual blemish. Number four, he is separated from sinners. He came in contact with them, but he never became like them. How different from so many people today who call themselves followers of Christ, and yet they come in contact with sinners, and instead of bringing those sinners to the Savior, the sinners drag them away into a sinful life. It didn't happen with Jesus. And he says, therefore, number five, he is exalted above the heavens because of the things we just mentioned. And the application of Hebrews chapter 7 is obvious. Why would anyone ever turn away from Jesus? Dr. Ken Hughes summarizes, so now we have the great benefits of the new covenant, atonement, 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. Number two, life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five and 26. Number three, conscience. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, 14. And then number four, access. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. End quote. Why would anyone ever turn away from Jesus? I agree with the writer of Hebrews who said in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Why would anyone ever turn away from Jesus? Let's pray.